My wife uh, told me the story of uh, when she went on a mission trip. She went on a few mission trips before we were married, and she recalled landing in an airport terminal at a city in eastern Africa. And she got off the plane, and as they entered into the airport, she was shocked by something that their culture had that was absent here. It was an aroma, B.O., It turns out that daily showering and masking your odor with deodorant and perfume is not something that's universally shared. She found that out. But uh, soon after being immersed among the people, it became normal to her. And she didn't smell it anymore. And I, I recount the story not to disparage any peoples, but to share the reality that we can be so used to something being normal that we don't realize when an offense is present. I remember um, years ago, I was, um, uh, I was when I, before I was married, I was living at a house and I was organizing getting different people to uh, come from like an exchange program from different parts of the, the world. And I had a guy come from Saudi Arabia and I was all excited for him to come to my house. And, and he gets there and, you know, just immediately after introductions, he is just all awkward and kind of standoffish and he's hiding in his room. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Turns out, in his culture, dogs are unclean animals. And I had a dog, and he was trying to avoid the dog and get away from the dog at all costs, and the dog's like all up in his face, because that's what dogs do, right? They're like, hey, new person, hi. Um, So it it was sad. We just had to put the dog down, you know. I'm kidding. Come on. You you guys thought I was serious. No, we made him move. No. He wanted to move. But anyways, he found a new place to live, and it was, it was, everything was okay. But, um, you know, as people, we live and breathe in a culture of people that God has placed us in. And I, you know, I wonder if we measure ourselves more against the standard of those around us, what's normal here, instead of the standard of the one who comes from above, somebody who comes from out of town, the Lord. Um, you know, last week we talked uh, about this passage. We talked about God's character and uh, answered some questions there. If you want to revisit those questions, you can look back at uh, 1 Samuel 15. You can listen to the sermon. You can go check out David Guzik's commentary. Um, But today's, uh, the message is titled, Ministry in the Image of Man. As we look at Saul, king of Israel, I hope that we might come to recognize how his self-congratulatory and popular actions were not in keeping with God's will, though the people really seemed to enjoy him. But to begin with Saul and Samuel, so, I mean, obviously we're reading in Samuel, the book is named after him. He was a prophet of God. He tried to follow the Lord with his life, and he led the people. At the, be- at the beckoning of the people of Israel, though, and the permission of the Lord, he was tasked with the responsibility of anointing the first king of Israel. Samuel operated as the final judge in the period of the judges. So, the book of Judges comes right before Samuel. And uh, the time spans the conquest of the land of Canaan up to the monarchy of Israel. So a couple hundred years, um, Samuel was the final judge. And he was tasked with anointing the king, but he didn't get to pick who he wanted to be king. It was, he had to listen to the Lord and who the Lord picked to be king. And so one day Saul shows up in town looking for his dad's donkeys. And Samuel had already heard from the Lord that this man was coming. And so when he saw him, he knew Saul was the man. Uh, they chatted briefly, Saul and, and Samuel, and then they went to dinner, and 
Samuel had Saul stay over at his house, and they had long conversations all night. And in the morning, Samuel talked a little bit more with him and then anointed him king and sent him on his way. And it was sort of like a secret anointing. Um, but later, Samuel assembled all of Israel so that they might choose and publicly, publicly ratify the new king. And by lot, Saul was chosen, though they had to drag him out of hiding among the luggage. And uh, they brought out a handsome man, a head taller than all the other men of Israel. And the people shouted, long live the king. I thought it was England who came up with that, but apparently it's here in the Bible. Uh, long live the king. And Samuel wrote down all of the king's duties and responsibilities and obligations before the people uh, in the presence of Saul, the people, the Lord, and he deposited that scroll before the Lord. Samuel had invested a good amount of time and energy and prayer into Saul. And, you know, truly, though, it wasn't without effect. Uh, Saul began his time as king with um, some remarkable victories. You know, the first time Saul was called upon as king, he was coming in from his work in the fields, and a report came to him that the Ammonites had invaded Israel and besieged the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And he called together the armies of Israel, and they assembled 330,000 fighting men. They am ambushed the Ammonites camp during the night, and they won a great victory. And Saul did this with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So it's obvious even from, from that brief account that Saul was a capable leader, organizer. He had grit. He showed moments of brilliance and promise where he followed the Lord. I think I want to kind of go through some of Saul's victories. Uh, one is that in, just in his life, he was a family man. Uh, when his dad lost the donkeys, he was working for his dad, and he was a faithful son, and he went out and found, you know, searched high and low throughout Israel looking for those donkeys. And he also, you know, if you know anything about Saul, his son Jonathan was a strong man of God. He was a warrior. He was a loyal, devoted friend of uh, David. He was faithful to his dad as well. He was faithful to the Lord. Uh, he was courageous, and Saul raised him. And so we see that Saul was a family man. We also see, and we might not want to gloss this over, but Saul was gainfully employed. And hey, that's a, that's a deal, right? He was working in the field with his oxen when the, the notice came that there was a, uh, an Ammonite uh, ambush or an Ammonite bes uh, besieging the city of Jabesh Gilead. So he was, he was working a job. He's a hard worker. And um, not only that, though, he was a capable leader and organizer. I mean, we, we gloss over the fact that he assembled an army of 330,000 men. Now, that's no small feat. I mean, I have, a, I have a hard time getting repairmen to come out to my house, and he's able to assemble an army of 330,000 men for war. And so he was capable. But he also had courage. He had courage in war. He took his armies to fight the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and the Philistines. He even, at the end of his story... Before going to battle with the Philistines, it was prophesied over him that he would die in battle, and he still took the armies out. He had courage. He knew he was going to die, and he still went uh, out with, our, with Israel and their armies. Another thing is that he, he aimed to please. He, you know, he heard that he was supposed to go on this mission from the Lord to strike the Amalekites, and then he went on the mission, right? He got you know, he, but he aimed to please himself too, right? He got the king as a trophy, and all the men got new sheep and goats and cattle. It was a win-win-win situation, a win all around, or so he thought. He also showed care. He was 
you know, careful not to destroy the Kenites. At the beginning of uh, chapter 15 here, um, as he's tasked to go destroy the Amalekites, there was a different people group living with the Amalekites, the Kenites, and he sent them a message and said, would you guys please remove yourself from the Amalekites because you guys were good to us. Uh, you were faithful to the Lord and to his people uh, and treated us well and helped us. And so we want to make sure you're treated well. So you need to remove yourself from the Amalekites so you don't get caught up in the battle. So he, show, he showed a care. And he had experience with God. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead Israel. When he heard about the Ammonites coming, the Spirit of God came upon him. He even, after he was anointed king, the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied and praised the Lord along with the prophets. So he had many victories. There was many good things about him that were admirable. But soon his God-given good virtues and victories would be overshadowed by his vices. So let's look at some of Saul's mistakes. The Philistines, in, verse, uh, in chapter 14, right before we get here, the Philistines had gathered for war against Israel. They amassed a huge army with chariots, 3,000 chariots and soldiers beyond counting. The Israelites were so afraid. People were hiding in caves, cisterns, wells. They were fleeing the country. Saul and Samuel had arranged that Samuel would come after seven days and perform the sacrifice before the Lord. But Saul's army started deserting him. They were, they were so afraid. So Saul took the animal, began performing the sacrifice himself, and while he's just finishing it up, Samuel shows, catching Saul red-handed, doing the job the Lord had tasked for Samuel. Saul was afraid. He was afraid of the unknown. He was afraid of what might happen if the army scattered. He didn't wait on the Lord. The battle was about to start. The men were scattering, and so he decided, like a typical man, to grab the bull by the horns, I guess literally here, and figure it out himself. God, however, had already planned to save Israel. He planned to save Israel from the Philistines. But instead of using Saul because of his disobedience, he used his son, Jonathan. Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, attacked an outpost of Philistines and threw the Philistines into panic. The ground began shaking as the Lord sent an earthquake and the Philistines broke rank. They broke camp and they were fleeing for their lives all over the place. Saul responded, sending the army in hot pursuit but the victory was stifled that day because Saul, in his vain glory, had forced the soldiers to a vow where they wouldn't eat anything until he had avenged himself on the Philistines. So the men were all exhausted from the fighting. His son Jonathan didn't hear the vow. He ate some honey, and Saul almost killed Jonathan for doing that if the Israelites didn't step in and stop him. And I, I mean, I understand a little bit about this exhaustion, this energy problem. Uh, back when I was in school, I uh, had worked all summer and saved up a bunch of money, and then my, my friend was like, hey, we should go to Australia on this biking tour. And, you know, I'm an independent young man, so I did what my friend told me to do. And um, I went to Australia with my school on this biking tour, uh, you know, like wearing those ridiculous shorts like Lance Armstrong does. And uh, we biked six or 700 miles from Melbourne to Adelaide, uh, we normally did about 40 to 60 miles per day. If you're like, oh, then I want to go biking with Drew sometime. I hate biking. I'm not doing it anymore. I've filled my quota of biking. My rear end is still sore, and so is my heart. So, um, but to get in shape for this tour, we did Sunday afternoon rides. 
and where we'd ride 30 or 40 miles or so. And there's a particular Sunday, I woke up, I was late for church, I didn't eat breakfast, and I got to church, and there were no donuts. No, exactly, that's what I was thinking. What kind of church is this establishment? No donuts. So, anyways, I, after church, I raced back home. I didn't have time to eat lunch, so I hadn't eaten anything all day, and I went on this ride. And about 30 to 40 miles in, I started lagging behind. And, you know, I'm, I'm a college athlete, and there's people in there that, you know, there's men, and there's boys and girls, and, and there's athletes and non-athletes, and I'm lagging behind, and I'm starting to get kind of embarrassed, and, you know, like, you know when you ride a bike up a hill, and you stand up, and you're, like, pumping, like, real hard? I'm doing that just on, like, the flats, and I still can't catch up, and I'm like, what is wrong with me? How come I can't catch up? And at this point, people are, like, dropping back on their bikes and looking at me and being like, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? Do you need to pull over? I'm like, I'm fine. Leave me alone. Eventually, finally, a guy comes back, and he's like, hey, uh, we're going to go over to McDonald's because you are experiencing hypoglycemia, which was rude for him to say that to me, you know. I don't even know what that means, if it's an insult to me or my mom or what exactly, right? Um, but apparently, I, you know, we talked about it afterwards, but your liver and your, your muscles, there's, between them, there's only about 1,800, 2,000 calories worth of uh, quick access energy for vigorous activity. And once you lose that, your blood sugar levels drop, your face goes white, you lose strength because your body's trying to tell you that you are out of gas, right? Um, it's called hitting the wall. In biking, they call it bonking. Um, but after not eating that day... Um, I guess I used up all my calories in that hour and a half, two hours. And um, what I learned that day is that McDonald's saves. It does. You didn't think so. McDonald's saves. So I, I never eaten a cheeseburger so fast in my life. And um, as soon as I ate that cheeseburger, I, all my energy came back. And I was able to, you know, finish out the ride with no problem at all. Like nothing had ever happened. And so I understand, you know, when, when Jonathan reaches out the staff and has a little bit of honey and his, he says his eyes brightened up and he was totally fine. I get that. But, but when you think about that, how ridiculous the order that Saul gave. Nobody's allowed to eat any food. They're, they're in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's like wrestling, fighting for extended periods of time all day long. And he's not allowing anybody to eat. And these guys are all wandering around with hypoglycemia, you know. And, but it wasn't about the Lord. It was all about Saul. It was all about him. Until I get vengeance on the Philistines, you guys aren't allowed to eat. That wasn't a command from God. Where did that come from? It was about him and his glory. And so we start seeing a problem with Saul's character cropping up here, and it leads us right into the passage. You recall, uh, as we read this passage last week, that Saul was sent by the Lord to bring judgment on the Amalekites, to wipe them out, to destroy everything, all the people all the animals. These people were under judgment by God. He went on the mission, but Saul spared the best of the sheep and cattle, and he spared the king. And the Lord told Samuel about it, and Samuel went to confront him. And here we find ourselves in the middle of that argument about whether or not Saul was being obedient. And so I, in this passage, there's a handful of problems with Saul I want to point out to you. The first is partial obedience is disobedience. Saul went on the mission and did most of the work, but he spared Agag and the best cattle and sheep. Have you ever done a job only to realize that after you thought you were done, you weren't quite done? 
Maybe it was pointed out to you afterwards by somebody else, or maybe it, it dawned on you that you didn't quite finish it. I used to inspect uh, road and bridge construction jobs. Some of you construction guys are like, oh, you're one of those guys. So sorry about that for you guys out there. But um, when the, the contractors told us that they were finished with the job, we'd go through the site, we'd produce a punch list, naming off all the things that they actually needed to, to wrap up before they got their final paycheck, which is what they really wanted, right? A job's not done until everything is complete. Uh, my kids try to get away with the same sorts of things. I tell them, I'm like, hey, kids, you need to go, before you get dessert, you need to go clean your room. And so they, they disappear for a long period of time, and they come back, and they're like, the room is clean. And so, you know, I walk in their room, and I was like, if your room is clean, then what is this Lego stuck in my foot right here, right? Um, because their, their definition of clean is they took all the clothes, and they stuffed them into the closet, and all the toys are still laying around, right? But it, it's not done yet. It's not done yet. Or how about this? Has the Lord ever convicted you to get rid of something from a previous lifestyle? And some of it was easy, but it was really hard to give up the best one. Maybe uh, you purged all the inappropriate movies from your house. You were convicted by God that you needed to do that. Except when you got to the best one, you're like, oh, this is my favorite movie, even though there's really inappropriate things in it. So I'm just going to keep this one, right? You love the cinematography, the score, the acting, the writing, the storyline. It's so good, except for those soul-sucking scenes that you've got to fast-forward through or hide your face from. It's hard to give up the best, even when you know it's the right thing to do. In Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20, the new believers in Jesus Christ got rid of things from their former lifestyle and even some of the best things. And it notes it here for us in verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, 50,000 drachmas, that was a lot of money in their day. That was years worth of wages. And that could have been, you know, sold and used for the ministry, right? Um, Or given away to the poor. But then somebody else would have these incantations and scrolls that would lead them away from following the Lord. And so they just got rid of them at a personal loss to themselves. But they had a clear conscience before God. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You know, in time... When we spend time with the Lord, we're taught by the Lord how to say no to ungodliness. And sometimes it's the grace of God as he providentially leads us away from ungodly things. Sometimes it's through reading scripture that it just hits us. Oh, I need to stop doing this. Sometimes it's through godly counsel. You're talking to another believer and they help you. Or you're reading a book and it helps you. And sometimes it's through experiencing the tragedy of sin and its consequences that you learn not to go there again. Partial obedience is disobedience. But also, along with that, partial truth is a lie. And we see Saul engaging in these partial truths. The first, he says, the soldiers brought them, that is the sheep and the cattle, and they took the best. So so Saul, in this passage, shifts the blame to the soldiers. They did it. He doesn't say, like, we got it. The soldiers, they did it. If Saul hadn't spared the best of the people for himself, that is King Agag, the soldiers 
uh, wouldn't have taken for themselves of the plunder, right? If Saul had set the example and said, no, I'm not going to take Agag the king, uh, the trophy, and you guys aren't going to take anything else, the people would have listened. But because Saul said, well, I'll take the best. I'm going to get this trophy king. And the people were like, well, I'll go and get the sheep and the cattle. It was really hard for Saul to say anything at that point, wasn't it? But he said that they were going to do it to sacrifice to the Lord. Well, we took the sheep and the cattle, but we did it so that we could sacrifice to the Lord. Really? I thought you did it because you were hungry and you wanted all these sheep and cattle, right? Their motives for disobedience were apparently pure, right? And how that sounds familiar to us, right? Um, I'm going to, you know, engage in this thing I'm not supposed to do, but I'll make up for it by doing a couple nice things later, right? And we, we talk to ourselves. We're like, well, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We lie to the Lord. We lie to other people. But Saul goes on. He says, the soldiers brought them. They took the best to sacrifice to the Lord, but we destroyed the rest, right? So in the part that sounds good, he includes himself in that part. They did this, but we destroyed the rest. But even that's not true. It's a lie. They didn't destroy the rest of the Amalekites because the Amalekites crop up again over and over in Scripture. He was lying. He was lying to make himself look good. And Samuel called him out on it. And, and so this partial obedience is really disobedience. But he sought to please man over God. He said to Samuel, I've sinned. I was, okay, finally, I sinned. I was afraid of the people. And here some of the truth starts coming out. Saul was able to go on this great feat the Lord had tasked him with, and he did not succumb to the enemy out there, but he gave in to the enemy whispering in his ear. His own men did not seek the Lord and influenced Saul away from the Lord in his decision-making. So sometimes it isn't the evil, wicked men who lead you astray in your walk with God. Sometimes it's other Christians, well-meaning people. They subtly influence you to reject the word of the Lord and the deep convictions you have in the Holy Spirit. For example, I mean, these past few years, we've had many people upset with us and the position that we've taken against the ungodliness in our culture, whether that's coming from, you know, TV shows or the media or certain government officials. I can't say who they are. The Johnson Amendment, 1954, clearly states that churches cannot oppose political candidates like President Joe Biden or Governor Jay Inslee for their evil policies, practices, and appointments. So we can't mention names like that. But while I'm not mentioning names, you guys heard that Governor Inslee listed the state of emergency um, and all the mandates, right? October 31st, right before the elections. So convenient. That's the way the science works, though. It's the science that told us that it's over, and the science is settled. So we can't say anything, right? We've been told that if we, change, if we don't change our insensitive tone, that people will leave and find another church, churches that do more humanitarian work and more Enneagram conferences. Or if you're looking for a church that's going to put on a seminar on how to love your lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, plus Christian friends hosted by two queer pastors, which is a real event that took place in our city, that church is down the road, by the way. It's not here. Apparently, if I say those sorts of things, like I just said right now, it's offensive to people. 
But have you considered how deeply offensive it is to God that his churches are hosting these sorts of things? That government leaders are promoting gross immorality? People who are made in his image and likeness and nobody says anything and we're not allowed to because it could offend somebody? Didn't God send Jesus to die for sin only to have people in his church and the government make sin great again? So when we come together, we come to worship a holy and righteous God who we fear and love and respect. That's why we gather together, to make everybody happy. People want us to change our tune to be in harmony with the culture, and haven't you felt that pressure? Sorry, though, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, as Joshua says. My endeavor is to tune my life to the perfect pitch of Jesus Christ, where my work and my life and my ministry, my home, they reflect how we love Jesus and we follow his commands. Jesus says that narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it, but broad is the road, and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. The Lord spoke to the prophet Ezekiel that if he didn't preach against the sin of Israel, their blood would be on his head. Shame on us if we don't say anything. Our goal here is to make God happy through following Jesus Christ, not to make people in our culture happy. You know, Saul though, he wasn't just afraid of being demonized by the people. He eagerly sought the praise of the elders of Israel. He wasn't in it for the Lord anymore. Saul was in it for the celebrity. And have you noticed the rise and fall of many celebrity megachurch Christians? Like Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, Brian Houston, Carl Lentz, Bob Coy, Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll. The list, it seems like it goes on and on, and that's just within the last couple of decades. But speaking of Mark Driscoll, I know some of you, like me, have listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. It's fascinating. Certainly it has an agenda, and I don't agree with everything in there wholesale. But in a particular interview, a former staff member recalled touring in Europe with Driscoll and other staff members. After an event in London, people were waiting to get Mark's autograph and get a photo with him. And on the ride home, the staff member mentioned He's like, it's crazy because like, you're just a pastor and they're treating you like a rock star. And Mark replied, maybe you haven't noticed, but I'm kind of a big deal in all seriousness. And uh, is it any wonder that the church imploded within just a few years? In a similar fashion, Saul, in this, in, in this chapter, built a monument in his own honor since he considered himself also a big deal, that he was larger than life, and he wanted everybody to know it, everybody to remember it. The Lord said to Saul, you weren't like this at one time. He said, you were once small in your own eyes. Saul, when he first started as king, he admitted he was from the least family of the most insignificant tribe in Israel that he wasn't worthy. But as the saying goes, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. When our attitude says we're a big deal, we give ourselves permission to act in a certain way or treat people in ways that are less than us because they're just little people. And there we're treading in dangerous waters and the Lord will rebuke us eventually. Isaiah chapter 42, 8, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I am the Lord, that is my name. 
I will not give my glory to another. Because God is a big deal. You and I are dust. Don't seek the praise from other dust creatures. Seek the praise of God. If you seek to become a celebrity among men or allow other men to celebrate you as a God among men, you are destined for a great fall. Or as Samuel ends, 1 Samuel ends, oh, how the mighty have fallen. One of the reasons that we employ so much self-deprecating humor here is to accomplish this very thing. I, you know, we get feedback. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's helpful, some of it's not. One thing that people like is typically the self-deprecating humor. When, we, when I make fun of myself, right? When Ken makes fun of himself. And um, it's because we want you to know that, I want you to know that I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy. I'm just like you. I'm, I'm depraved. I'm flawed. I'm sinful. I'm, I fail in so many different things in different areas of my life. But I have a great and merciful Savior, Jesus Christ, who covers for all of my sins and all of my shortcomings. And we celebrate Him. He's our celebrity. Or as the hymnist says, I will not boast in anything, no gift, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. So seek not the praise of men, but seek the praise of God. Another problem with Saul is that he has a false guilt and makes a false sort of confession. He feels bad now that he's caught, right? You know, you know what it's like. You're doing fine. You think you're going to get away with it. You get caught and you feel bad. Now that Samuel is confronting Saul and after arguing back and forth, only now does Saul confess his sin. I have sinned. He feels bad that he's been caught. But blessed is the man who repents after being convicted by the Holy Spirit and doesn't wait to, until his sin is revealed to everybody that he's rebuked by the Lord and others. But then he says some weird things in his confession that I think really give us a greater idea of where Saul's at with the Lord. He says, I've sinned, please forgive me. And he's talking to Samuel so that I may go and worship the Lord your God. Interesting. Saul asks for Samuel's forgiveness, but what about the Lord? Isn't it mysterious that he doesn't treat his offense as a personal offense against a personal being that is God? He has a personal relationship with Samuel and asks him for forgiveness, but only a formal, distant relationship with God through Samuel. So when he describes the Lord as your God, I mean, Samuel loves the Lord. He hears from the Lord. The Lord speaks to him. Samuel listens and obeys, but Saul doesn't have that relationship with God. There's a separation there. It reminds me of when people, they, they need to talk to a priest or a pastor or an, another holy man in order so that they might talk with God. But for us, the truth is that God isn't far from any one of us. We can reach out to him through his son, Jesus. Through his sacrifice, Jesus was able to bridge the gap in our relationship with God. And we see that this is missing in Saul's life. But also we see that Saul considered himself above the law when he tore Samuel's robe. When they were done with their you know, interchange, when they were done with their conversation, Samuel turned to leave, Saul reached out, grabbed the robe, and it tore. You know, in the Old Testament, we had three basic roles um, that you'll hear often referred to, priest, king, and prophet. 
The priests could only be from the tribe of Levi. They were further limited to the descendants of Aaron. Uh, they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. They tended to the tabernacle and the temple of the Lord. They were set as the middlemen between God and man to signify that man wasn't holy enough to approach the Lord on, on his own. Kings, however, were supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. The king was anointed by a prophet of God. They were to rule with justice and righteousness in keeping with the law of Moses. They were to not only have personally read the books of Moses, but they were to have handwritten the books of Moses and then keep it as their own copy and read it the rest of their lives. And then we have the prophets. The prophets were unique mouthpieces of God who would speak to the people, priests, and king, help to keep them accountable to the Lord and his law. They would remind the people of the curses for disobedience and the blessings for obedience. And occasionally the prophets would be revealed the truth from the Lord, whether current, past, or future, that would have been impossible for man to know otherwise. And these prophecies were always 100% accurate. So when Saul grabbed Samuel's robe and tore it, there's something deeper happening than a wardrobe malfunction. The robe or mantle was a symbol of a man's position or authority, like we would think of a uniform with an insignia on it. By tearing the robe, King Saul was communicating that he thinks he has the right to decide who fills whatever positions in the kingdom, and he can tear anything down that he wants to. He's disrespecting the role of the prophet Samuel. So this would speak to why in the next chapter Samuel is afraid. He's afraid to go anoint David king because in verse 2, he's like, Saul will try to kill me if he finds out about that. But the Lord tells him to go anyways. But I think with all of the, the problems that Saul had, they all stem from a main single problem. It's that Saul turned from God. First Samuel 15, 11, the Lord says that, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. Saul first turned away from the Lord, and then he moved into disobedience. He first turned away from the from the Lord, and then he moved into disobedience. When men fall into sin, they don't just happen into it. Like, you guys have maybe seen those videos where a kid falls into an exhibit at the zoo, right? The, the person, the kid who falls into the zoo was hanging out on somewhere he shouldn't have been hanging out. He was hanging over the edge, right? You shouldn't be there. When a man falls into sin, he was already on the edge of something he shouldn't have been messing with. It's once been said that when a man sins, it's no new thing because he's already been there a hundred times over in his heart. And I think this goes for both deliberate sins and sins that just happen. Our Lord Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. My kids, they fill up the water cup at the sink, and they fill it up to the very top, to the brim, right? And then they try to, like, walk with it. And then they step on the Lego that they had set for me, uh, and then they, they hurt themselves, and they're like, Dad, what happened? They're all surprised. I'm not surprised. I saw it coming. In the same way, when all of a sudden you are surprised by your sin, it's coming out of you, and you just you didn't see it coming. It's coming out of the overflow of your heart. God wasn't surprised. He knew that you had filled up to the brim and just waiting to bump into something, like carrying bitterness, like water to the brim, just ready to snap. The Lord's not surprised. 
But what's true for Saul is what's true for all men. In order to sin, we must first turn away from the Lord. So we sit on this for a second. The things we do against the Lord are the result of a heart that is turned away from God. The only way that we engage in sinful behavior is on the heels of a pivot away from God. Sin neither has its origins in God, nor is it entertained by God. So to go there, we must leave God behind. So I wonder, is there an area of your life where God is absent? Where you have deliberately left him out of the conversation? Turn away. Turn away from your sin. Turn back to the Lord. Lest the same ruin come upon your life that eventually came upon Saul. God sent Jesus into a world filled to the brim with sin. He came to save us out of it, to give us new life where we're free from sin and its terrible consequences. Turn to the Lord. Reach out to Him. Reach out to the Savior who came to deliver you from sin. Saul felt that his service was acceptable to the Lord. He was doing ministry in the image of man. He was creating a God in his own mind and his own heart who liked all the things that he was doing, who served his own purposes and thoughts just like him. But God will not settle for the idols we create even if we write God on their foot with a sharpie. Lest it all be sadness, I think we might look at Samuel here for a minute and look at his example. We look at Samuel's faithfulness. And it really points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing about Samuel is that Samuel developed listening ears. If you recall the story of Samuel as a child at the beginning of 1 Samuel, he's serving in the temple of the Lord. He's just a little kid. His mom dropped him off. He must have been a handful at home. I don't know. Um, dropped him off with Eli the priest, and they, she'd come back every year and give him some new clothes. But um, he, was, he was sleeping at night, and he heard the voice, the voice of the Lord, and he he acted. He listened. He heard the Lord. It was rare in his day. And he said, speak for your servant is listening. And then that didn't just happen then, but Samuel kept it going in his life. At the beginning of this chapter, Samuel was having a conversation with the Lord where he received the instruction about Saul and what Saul had done and a command to carry out. He had listening ears. And this is not just Samuel, but it's something that our Lord Jesus fulfilled in a greater way. I mean, Jesus regularly went away to pray. He developed, or he had those listening ears, but he practiced it as a man. He went away to the mountains. He went away to hear from the Lord, from the Father. Jesus even says that his food was to do the will of the Father, and that he did nothing of himself, but only did what the Father had asked him to do. Jesus listened. Samuel listened. God God wants us to follow in suit. But also Samuel practiced ready obedience. You know, when he was that little kid, uh, he didn't recognize the voice of the Lord. He thought it was his master Eli, and he, he listened, and he got up and ran to Eli and said, I'm here, I'm here. And here, after receiving uh, the word of the Lord in this passage, he receives the word, he cries out to the Lord all night, and then he wakes up early in the morning and goes to meet with Saul. I mean, that's a conversation that I would like to put off for several months, maybe a couple years until I work up the courage to go have that conversation. But not Samuel. He was ready. He was ready to be obedient. I'm going to do it first thing in the morning. And he went and did it. Um, 
I heard a quote from Mark Twain. He said, uh, if you have to eat a toad, do it first thing in the morning. About doing hard things. Okay, there we go. But it wasn't just Samuel who practiced ready obedience. It was our Lord Jesus Christ who really fulfilled it. He came to earth to carry out the task of offering himself a sacrifice for many. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to, uh, not to be served like a king who erects a monument for himself, but to serve the people he loved and he came to die for. Practice ready obedience. May we be ready likewise. But also Samuel continued moving forward despite an experience of deep disappointment. And did Samuel have several? If you read the story of Samuel, um, Samuel's sons, his own flesh and blood, were godless men, adulterers, thieves, dishonest, took bribes, perverted justice, and it was widespread. It was known throughout Israel that Samuel's sons were like this. The people rejected his sons because their lives were so blatantly godless. What a disappointment for a man of God who did his best to lead Israel and teach people about the Lord to have sons who just slandered his name. But it wasn't just his sons that were a disappointment. It was Israel, the nation, that was a disappointment. When they heard that armies were coming, instead of trusting in the Lord to provide, they looked at all the other nations and they were like, hey, let's get a king just like them. They rejected the Lord as king and sought a man to be king like every other nation. And this broke Samuel's heart. It was on his watch that the period of the judges where people relied on the Lord came to an end. It was on his watch that they sought for a king and they sought to reject the Lord and get a king. What a disappointment for Samuel. But also Saul, King Saul. Samuel put so much time, effort to mentor Saul, meeting with him regularly, gathering up all of Israel uh, to, to ratify him as king, declare him, he did it on two different occasions, going to meet Saul to rebuke him for his disobedience on several occasions. Man, he tried his best to set up Saul for success, but Saul rejected the word of the Lord. So that's a lot of disappointment for a man. Even after this event in chapter 15, at the end, it says that Samuel went home and never went to go see Saul again, and he mourned for Saul the rest of his days. He was so heartbroken over it. The Lord didn't let him stay in that way for too long, though. Um, the Lord had stuff for him to do. The very next chapter, the Lord says, are you still mourning for him? Go up. I got a, I got a job for you. You got to anoint a new king. So David eventually came. But when we think about deep disappointments, I think about what our Lord Jesus had to go through. His disciples, they abandoned him in his time of hour of need. It was foretold, but still, I'm sure there was a sting there. And Judas, to capstone it all off, betrayed him. Israel, the people that he came to save, rejected him at the leading and guidance of their religious leaders, teachers of the law, priests, Sanhedrin. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, uh, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Or disappointment in that the Romans, they didn't stand for justice. They executed Jesus as a criminal for expediency and to satiate the Jews in their bloodlust when they knew 
Jesus had done nothing wrong. What disappointment. But Jesus endured the disappointment because he knew what was to come. He knew he was dying for us. He was dying for the church. He knew the future. Samuel endured the disappointment because he knew that David would come. He knew that there was a man after God's own heart out there. And I think when we're experiencing those same deep disappointments, it's easy to get wrapped up and caught in that and not expect that the Lord is preparing something wonderful in the future. Samuel shows us the true servant of God, the true judge, a true king who takes care of the flock, that is Jesus Christ. So when we look at Saul, we see a man of mixed motives. He tried to please everybody, but his heart was set on being a celebrity in the eyes of men. He created a ministry that looked like he was serving God, but the entire time he was doing it really for himself. Are you willing to examine your life in motives, your ministry to God, to see if your heart is truly set on honoring the Lord? Even if it means living like Samuel, where it seemed every time he tried to follow the Lord, to honor the Lord, it ended in disappointment until David came. I'd encourage you, turn back to the Lord. Turn away from the sin that comes between you and the Lord. Live a life where Jesus is God of every part where no circumstance do you have to cover his eyes and attempt to keep him from seeing what's really going on. Receive that cleansing forgiveness of Jesus Christ for your sins, where he dealt with it once and for all on the cross, and live in the freedom of a life where you're no longer a slave to sin. Mm-hmm.